Hi there, good evening. Hi. Um, my name is Jane Davidson and I work at the University of Melbourne in the uh, faculty of the Victorian College of the Arts and the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music. And I'm professor of creative and performing arts brackets music. And I'm also associate dean engagement. And that is the thing that connects Jodie and I. So I'm not from the arts. So I'm from the business school, Melbourne Business School, and have worked in the arts for the last 15 years, but really from a background of, of marketing and particularly audience engagement. So a lot of my focus has been on how we attract new audiences and how we enhance the experience for audiences today to keep them coming back. Because without audiences, arts institutions will cease to exist so that's a, a big focus of what I have um, spent the last 15 years on, really. And I'm also an Associate Dean of Engagement focused on the business school's social, cultural and economic impact. And so within the uh, Faculty of the, the Arts, if you like, in, in the uh, Victorian College of the Arts Melbourne Conservatorium of Music, I have similar interests. But I'm also, by training, a music psychologist, which means that I'm also interact, interested in social interaction in music and also have interests in audiences and performers, and in particular how that uh, communication works. And indeed, I began my own interest in psychology of music as a performer, wondering about whether what I was feeling and experiencing was being transferred to the audience. So to set that up a little bit, I'm going to have to put my specs on. I'm uh, just going to take you through a few slides and then Jodie's going to talk about some research she undertook here and then we'll flick back to me who did a different kind of study here. So uh, as you see, are you going tonight? So what is it about the live audience experience? And we are posing you three questions. What do music audiences want? How does the music audience experience contribute to well-being? And what can be done to improve the music audience experience? So they're the three questions that uh, we're playing around with. But before we deal with those, I want to go back in time and I want to look at historical context. Here is um, something written about an audience experience in 1707 seeing one of Handel's operas. You often see several of the nobles bending forward at once half out of their boxes, and you hear them crying out aloud, especially when it's a woman, cara, cara, adding to their enthusiasm that they are going to throw themselves down headlong through an excess of pleasure. Okay? <laughs> So a kind of hyperbole and a kind of language we wouldn't use today, and we would hardly throw ourselves down in an excess of pleasure. But nonetheless, it's very interesting to think about these experiences. A couple of decades later, this is a notice in the theatre. Upon complaint that disorders have been of late committed in the footman's gallery, to the interruption of the performance... This is to give notice that the time any disorder is made there, that the gallery will be shut up. Okay? 
So the sense is now that rather than people being so emotive and moved, they're actually engaging in lots of noise in the gallery. Are they heckling? What are they doing? Well, here again is the quote, this time a little bit later, 1800. I go to the opera for amusement, not to be constantly saddened. I don't want to be feeling that melancholia of some great emotional aria. I want to be entertained. Well, of course, there's a huge time gap, but these are all questions we can be posing ourselves and thinking about. Here, indeed, is an 18th century audience. And note the rail, highlighted by the arrows, actually with spikes on it, separating the audience from the performers. <laughs> so that's the separation between the pit. And as you can see, you can buy cakes and reading. Um, you can have a little bit of hanky-panky there. There's plenty going on in that audience. It is not an attentive group of people. Here we see the privilege, the more aristocratic people in the boxes. Note the drawstring for the blind to come down, the roller blind, and the curtain to be drawn. You can have all kinds of private fantasies being fulfilled. As the action's going on on the stage, you can be entertaining yourself. And here you see that actually in the 18th century, it was a huge social thing. It was to do with money and privilege and social status and so on going out to a performance. Now, we could say the same uh, for some people of today's audiences. And again, this is really just to stimulate that kind of conversation. And here we have a picture again of a Handelian opera performance. And as you can see, in the, you perhaps can't see, but the audience is very active. There's a little boy standing up looking back into the audience. There are people playing cards, every kind of activity going on. And uh, we have some letters from Samuel Sharp, who was an Englishman, who went to Italy. And he says, I am amazed by the noisiness of the audience. I was prepossessed of this custom before I left England, but I had no idea it was carried out to such an extreme. And in response, Giuseppe Baretti says, Mr. Sharp, whose tenderness of bowels is certainly greater than his power of investigation, appears very much concerned at our considering the opera as a place of rendezvous and visiting rather than as a sacred temple to the awful deities of harmony and melody. And he is almost angry with us because we do not seem in the least to attend to the music, but laugh and talk through the whole performance without any restraint, so that we entirely cover the voices of the singers with our conversing so loudly together. So attending a performance is a public ritual of chatting and, and so on, quite different to the kind of thing we do nowadays. But by the end of the century, the end of the 18th century, we see that behavior starting to change. One sees for the first time a musical tragedy heard with sustained attention from start to finish. 
an extreme and uninterrupted attentiveness. Listeners do not permit themselves the slightest movement during the performance. And one could argue with the establishment of the large concert halls during the 19th century, the dimmed lighting in the auditorium and the focus on the emergent star soloist, that role of active engagement and involvement changed the audience's position significantly in classical music. Of course, popular music's got a different kind of context. And later, when we have Q&A, we can talk about some of that as well. The other thing I want to point out about 18th century, or at least the whole art of rhetoric, the performer's job at that time was to function like an orator. So somebody even playing the violin, or in my case, I'm a singer, so I'm interested in singing behavior. What the duty of the performer was to instruct and to delight, but most of all, to move the audience, to move the affections of the audience. And here we see a famous treatise by Quantz, which is indeed about what musical expression is to do. Musical expression may be compared to that of an orator. The orator and the musician both have the same purpose, purpose both in respect to the composition of their works as well as in their delivery. They want to seize the hearts of the listeners excite or appease the movements of the soul, and to move the listener from one passion to another. So we have to think about that in the context of music that we hear nowadays from the past. Do we sustain that kind of performer intention? Is it communicated through the kinds of expressive means now as it was then? Uh, C.P.E. Bach. A musician cannot be moved unless he too is moved. He must of necessity feel all of the effects that he hopes to arouse in his audience. For the revealing of his own humor will stimulate a like humor in the listener. So again, that's something that I think is very important to consider. And I'm going to draw to a close in a second, but I just want to shift the conversation from the audience, but to the performer. And this is the point I want to make. That um, to be moved in the audience, you have to be moved by the performer. And what is the audience experience? Is it about some kind of self-regulation of your emotions? Do you go to the performance to weep, to laugh? Or what are you going for? Are you going to hear your favorite work? Are you going for the social repartee? So there are all these questions to be posed. And before I hand over to Jody, um, I just want to make one other point, which is about the need to prepare performers. As we come to the 21st century scenario, there was a study done quite recently. I haven't got slides on it because I, I know the study at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. And it compared the training of the classical music performers with those of the theater students. So those students who were training to be actors and what they discovered was they got the students to work together on projects. Now, the classical music students had been trained more or less from first engagement with their instrument to be in that solitary position of in the practice room to hone and refine their skill 
and that actually the act of performance for them was delivery of an idealized performance they had in their head and to present that. But the audience was in the conversation and the report they got from these students quite immaterial to the experience. It was about them delivering their prepared and finished work. It was like the ultimate stage in the practice. It wasn't about moving the affections of the audience. It wasn't about grabbing the audience's attention when they're sniffing snuff and chatting. It was about uh, being the best they could. And I think this needs addressing because by contrast, the acting students from the get-go were all about preparing for the collective of the interaction between co-performers to indeed move the affections and change the lives of the audiences. So um, I think I'll leave that there and let Jodie pick up because she's actually been doing some research in this area, indeed in this recital area. Sorry, we've just got to change PowerPoint. <coughs> I think what Jane really highlights is this changing expectation from audiences over the years, that from being a very participatory social experience, going to see a live performance has really changed over time. And this has got quite significant repercussions in terms of what is really going to engage and attract audiences to part with their money and their time today. And that's a challenging thing for arts organisations to deal with, is that you know, we talk about lots of traditional companies, fast-moving consumer goods, wanting you to buy their, their goods off the supermarket shelf. You're, you're just parting with money at that point. The arts have a bigger challenge because you need to both part with money and time. And it's at a really critical time where most people think they have less and less free time. We all think we're increasingly busy. Right? Most research shows that we're not actually any busier today than previous generations, but we think we're very busy. And so this has big psychological ramifications for audiences, is what is actually going to make you go out of a weekend or on a weeknight, on a Monday night, to, to spend time somewhere else and interacting with different people and in a different way? And this is partly what motivated some work that we did with the, the Recital Centre over the last few years around the journey that audiences go on in a live experience and how this actually makes your life better. And so this was part of the question, was coming to live music, and particularly coming to a venue like the Recital Centre, does it actually make life better for you? Is that part of the reason audiences keep coming back? And also, does that then become an important part of the organisation's narrative? Is this the stories they start to tell? Not just about what the performance is being provided. So this idea of the performer and we spend all of our focus on marketing the performance. When actually part of the story and part of the attraction is actually what happens internally for the audience. And so what we were looking at was a, a partnership piece of research between the recital centre the University of Melbourne who actually funded the work. And then it was a real collaboration across disciplines from the Victorian College of the Arts and the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music, people from the Faculty of Arts and then also a group of us from the, the business school, really looking to investigate what happens to audience members at the recital centre. And so part of what we were wanting to understand 
was the impact the experience has. So what does it actually do to your sense of well-being in the world? And then with my marketing hat on, what does that actually mean in terms of the success and viability of the recital centre as an institution? And so if your well-being is enhanced, does it mean you're actually going to come back? So if you feel better about yourself, your place in the world as a result of an experience at the recital centre, does that make you more likely to repeat that visit? And does it also make you more likely to share stories about your experience? And so this is an important relationship for an arts organisation to understand because they are resource poor, right? They don't have the millions of dollars in marketing to spend advertising to audiences. The best advertisers of any arts experience are the members of the audience themselves. And so what we were asking audience members to describe is their experience. So from the experience you had last night, what words would you use to describe it? And this was something that, that really came through so strongly, is this sense of joy, pure enjoyment, this joyous experience that it's uplifting, that it literally lifts up the soul. And this is powerful for an arts organisation to understand and also for performers to get to share in. So it's not this notion of the research you were talking about of the performer just thinking about their personal excellence, but actually helping them to understand the value in the performance is the transformative effect it has on audience members. That's part of the, the purpose of it. And so what this research showed, even this notion of the word wonderful, that experiences here are full of wonder, that they are exciting and moving and people have a great sense of affinity and love for the recital centre as a venue and for the sort of programming that they put on. It's also a relaxing experience. And this came through a lot in the research where I think part of the reason we see the shift in dynamic of audience expectations from being something very loud and social and it's a gathering to something where we've got an expectation that the performers are gonna do something to us personally is because we seek escape. We seek, we seek escape from our busy, busy lives. And what we get is this relaxing, uplifting escape from everyday life. And that's something that only theatre and performance can do. So in the arts, we talk a lot about the difference between the white box and the black box. So the white box is the art gallery, right? The lights are on, everybody's moving around, you get to see everybody as they interact with the art. The black box in a theatre, the lights go down. It's you and the performance. And so this notion of escape is really enhanced in theatre and in live music that we don't see the same of when we're talking about visual arts experiences. And so what we were looking at was three key ways that live music might contribute to an individual's sense of well-being. Part of it is this notion of, of immersion or engagement. So how cognitively, emotionally and imaginatively you are actually immersed in the experience. So the extent to which it literally enables you to block everything else out about your day and you are just completely transfixed by this performance and this experience. And then with that level of immersion, we're also looking at whether your life has been enhanced. Do you feel better about your day, your life, 
your community as a result of this particular music performance. The third element was an interesting one. This was looking at the extent to which you feel a sense of connection with others. And so this is challenging for, for the black box, for theatre, because although you can be part of a crowd as you're going in, once you're inside the, the theatre and the lights are dimmed, do you feel a connection to the performance? Do you feel a connection to the people you came with? Do you feel part of a co-created experience with the other audience members? And you'll see in a little bit why that particular aspect is, is so important for arts organisations to deliver on today. And so what we did was, as well as doing a lot of qualitative research and talking with lots of audience members, we also sent out a survey to members of the recital centre. Now, whenever you do survey research, response rates are typically low, right? We're all over-surveyed. No one likes filling them out. There's not a lot of personal reward. So the fact that close to 500 audience members from the recital centre chose to fill out the survey is a real example of people's sense of connection and affinity with the institution itself. And what this little radar graph shows you is where the strengths are, so where people really felt immersed or engaged, where they felt that this was a truly enriching experience, that you can see people paid a lot of attention, right? Time flew, they were absorbed, they paid attention, they were engrossed in the experience. They also had this great sense of joy and happiness. They were enthusiastic, they were excited, they're engrossed. They've got this emotional response. All of this is pretty strong. But you notice a slight dip in the radar graph when we get to aspects of community and connection. And so this idea of being connected to the recital centre itself as a venue, being connected to the staff, the people who are actually there not just the performers, but the ushers and the staff, the front of house staff, and also people's connection with other audience members. So we've done similar research to this with visual arts organisations, and it's completely different. The level of immersion is much lower because the lights are on and it's easy to be distracted, but the sense of connection with others, because you stand in front of a piece of art and someone else is standing there and you say, do you like it? What do you think about that? What do you think that artist was doing? That ability to converse and engage within the experience means that the sense of connection to others is really heightened. And this becomes a challenge for performing arts organisations because part of the other research we were doing, Net Promoter Score is a, a question that lots of companies use today. On a scale of kind of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend this experience to friends or family? And then the way we calculate the score is only those who are scoring you nine or 10 are considered promoters, real strong advocates of what you have to offer. And then you've got the group in the middle who are just passive. And then you've got the detractors. So those giving you kind of one or two very unhappy, unhappy customers, right? Now, for a lot of organisations, a net promoter score of zero can be a great win. So there's a lot of industries where we don't love them. And even just to get it to neutral is successful. So if you think about banks, right, financial services, insurance, life insurance, health insurance, these are the sort of industries that we feel we're stuck with. And so it's often hard to get people to really love you and advocate for you. 
In the arts sector, a net promoter score around 40 to 50 is pretty solid win. And so what we see for the recital centre is a net promoter score above 70. This is pretty strong and unique in the arts sector, particularly in Melbourne. And you get a sense of why it's so high with quotes like, it was a transportive experience as well as highly emotive, from tears to exhilaration. I was totally involved emotionally, physically and cognitively. The sense of deep immersion and escape in the experience, this is what impacts people so personally. The playing of the young pianist was awe-inspiring, completely lifted my heart and made me feel so proud of our young musicians. I felt a tremendous privilege in being part of the community that evening. And we do, we feel this sense of privilege when we're in the room with such amazing talent and we get to experience it and be part of that, the production of that performance. What we were looking at as well was the extent to which these sorts of emotions, immersion, engagement, enrichment, community, actually affect our behaviours once we leave the theatre. And so what we know for the recital centre the effect of my experience was to crystallise time. I will remember those hours in a way more vividly than whole months or years of recorded music. What we know is that the majority of people who've been in the audience at the Melbourne Recital Centre are highly likely to recommend it to others. They're also going to unsolicited share lots of positive stories. So when you go back to work tomorrow or you've been to a performance on the weekend and you go back to work on the Monday, there's always this notion we look at with the power, the advocacy power of customers and audiences, is if someone asks you what you did on the weekend, you'll tell them about it. So that's kind of a solicited response. Someone's asking you. But what we're looking at with positive word of mouth is are you the first one to initiate that conversation? When you get into the office, are you the one to say, oh, my gosh, I went to this incredible experience on the weekend? That's what we're really looking at with that positive word of mouth, that unsolicited advocacy. And then probably where the recital centre is not as strong is when we look at what this means for preference. So the extent to which you prefer the Melbourne Recital Centre above and beyond any other cultural venue in Melbourne. And this is where it's, it's a little bit more moderate. And you'll see part of that is because of this notion of community and connection. And so with the research we did, what we were able to look at was the relationship between how strong this was in delivering on well-being and also the extent to which it really predicted your advocacy behaviour, which is what Net Promoter Score looks at. And so when we look at something like immersion, it's really high, right? It's the highest aspect of well-being that came out in the research. But it's not a major driver of your advocacy behaviour. So the more immersed you are in the experience, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to share those stories or prefer the recital centre over others. Enrichment, however, is really high again, but is also a strong predictor of this advocacy and referral behaviour. So the more moved you are, right, this notion of emotional connection that cognitively, emotionally, you have been affected by this experience, the more likely you are to share stories about it. The interesting issue is that community and connection is the weakest component for the recital centre right now. But our research also shows that it is the most significant predictor of advocacy behaviour. 
This is where we start to see a sense of going back to this historical notion of the audience. So back in the 18th century, people were part of something together. They fell to connection with each other. They fell to connection with the performers. It's loud and raucous and it's a real community event. Today, we've kind of lost some of that sentiment. It's us and the performer. Sometimes it's not even the performer. We close our eyes. Right? So we see this a lot when we're talking about live music. People often close their eyes so that they're not distracted by the performer and it's about the music. But that means there's also less of a human connection. And what the research really shows is that for audiences today, they are seeking more and more connection with each other as other members of the audience, with the staff who are facilitating this experience and certainly with the performers themselves. And this is where Jane's comments around what we need to do to educate performers today, that how do we enable them to prioritise not just the excellence and quality of what they're producing, but also the quality of the connection they can develop with audiences. How do we get them to look beyond the stage to actually see who's there experience this, experiencing this amazing production? Great. Okay, I'm just going to end this and uh, bring my PowerPoint back up. I think a lot of points Jody has made there are completely um, relevant and salient for a, a discussion between all of us. What I would like to do now is just uh, look at some other research that brings up some of these points again. Is there a tension between the experience of the classical audience nowadays? So this is looking in a different context. This was looking at symphony orchestra attendance. And the, what they found was that regular symphony orchestra attendees viewed the audience experience as an internal and private thing. They went along. They sat in the audience, they felt all these powerful emotions, and they had this absorbed experience. But it wasn't, as Joji was pointing out, about connecting with the people in the room with them necessarily, or having any kind of communion directly with one audience member. It was about the listening experience. And what they viewed other members of the audience as potentially being were distractions. So if there was coughing and clapping, we've all been in that situation, <coughs> oh, and the look and all the, uh, uh, the rules of the game are not known by all other audience members, the very devoted concert goer does not like that kind of behaviour. They like to be in the club of knowing how you behave in this sanctum of the darkened auditorium and the relationship with a far distant, often far distant performer. They didn't mind other members of the audience being there so long as they were behaving in exactly the same fashion as them. They were insiders having this particular kind of internal experience. And that's what becomes so challenging when we want to introduce the arts to new audiences. Yep. Because those norms of behaviour, and if you don't know them, you're not part of the club, become a really serious inhibitor to coming. And that leads me to the next point. There was some work done uh, both at the Barbican Centre and also 
um, with other audiences in London, and it's actually somebody I know called Melissa Dobson, who actually took new volunteers to go and see classical music concerts for the first time. And what was really fascinating about that experience was they either went to see, there were three different groups of people, quite large groups of people. They either went to see what you would call a Pops classic concert, so maybe with Ode to Joy and, and some of the more well-known material. Um, they saw a really standard fair 19th century repertoire concert, including a Wagner Overture. And uh, they went to see some music by Michael Nyman. So these three different groups of people. And what this new audience said was, as a whole, each different group enjoyed the experience. They much preferred the, the group who went to the popular classics because they weren't aware that they even knew this classical music. But it was so in the air they breathed and on the television, they felt some familiarity and therefore some liking owing to the exposure, the previous exposure. Those who went to the mainstream 19th century concert enjoyed the music but felt this great sense of alienation because they didn't understand the etiquette of the performance. So they didn't understand why there was no spoken introduction, why the performers were so apart from them, and why the audience didn't applaud in some places, why the audience applauded in other places, and so on. And then those who went to see the Michael Nyman concert could not make head nor tail of the fact that Michael Nyman was in the audience, and yet he wasn't part of the performance. So that gap between this assumed knowledge, perhaps we all have as regular concert goers to this genre, and the actual experience of trying to bring a new audience member is quite significant. This is work that we see replicated time and time again. So a few years ago, we did a piece of work with the Australia Council for the Arts on how to develop audiences for Indigenous arts. So across visual arts, theatre, music, literature and dance. And the big reason people weren't going was fear. Fear mm. about how to behave. Fear about not being part of the group and that you'd somehow do something to embarrass yourself. And this is certainly the case that we see replicated with experiences like live music and particularly programming that we, we see that's more classical. That people are just terrified of being embarrassed. And this is a big obstacle for arts organisations wanting to grow their audiences and also wanting to demonstrate their value to society more broadly by saying we have this inclusive, diverse experience when people just feel so scared about going. Mm. We did similar work with public galleries in Victoria, talking to people who do go, the big art lovers, but also talking to those who didn't attend. And their assumptions about a visual art experience were amazing. They assumed that for a family of four, it would cost at least $80. They were absolutely stunned to hear that most public galleries other than special exhibitions were free. They made this assumption that it would be expensive for them, that it would take a whole day, that the kids would get bored and then we'd waste our money. And they also felt you had to dress up, right? So how you had to dress and then the cost and the burden of that all of these things became these insurmountable obstacles for them to go. 
And this is part of the challenge. We have the research that shows it's literally going to make your life better. The more you engage with the arts, the better you are going to feel about your life, your place in society and the world more broadly. And yet there's all of these people who are so terrified because of these norms mm. and expectations that they never even set foot in the door. Mm. I want to raise two points. I had done some extra slides and I deleted them because I thought we would have too much material. But um, what I do want to point out is, uh, again, uh, as you can hear, I come from England. And for a long time, I was associated with a, a, a salon a bit like this, um, which is next door to the Crucible Theatre, where they hold the World Championship Snooker. And it's called uh, Music in the Round. And it was uh, a series of concerts begun in the 1970s by a string quartet called the Lindsay String Quartet, an internationally renowned string quartet. And what were, they were able to bring to Yorkshire was this really high level, international level chamber music. They developed a series where they would bring artists from all over the world. And they were able to break down some of the boundaries of that traditional concert going etiquette. And they developed a new audience, a very loyal audience that gradually grew over the years. And they were able to have all kinds of different performers come into their series. They would have jazz performers and so on. And what they did, little by little, it was like a kind of social conformity and then gradual rule breaking. They would seat the audience in the round. They would sit in their four seats. And in between movements of a piece, they would change seats. They would start and chat to the audience. And uh, the guy, Peter Cropper, who was the uh, principal violinist, the first violinist, he would say, did you not think I played a bit out of tune in that bit? I want to play that melody again for you. Can you hear what we're trying to do here? Do you understand we're slowing down at this bit? What do you think about that? And they, they would get to know people in the audience. And this spread like wildfire, the absolute love and devotion to this string quartet. They stopped wearing the formal DJs. They would come in their jeans. The whole ambience of the place changed. And over the 13 years I lectured there, it really became a hallmark uh, institution in Sheffield. And it now is music in the round business that tours all over the UK. And the Lindsay Quartet retired and very sadly Peter Cropper died. And uh, then a new ensemble took over, Ensemble 360 with much younger players, a larger ensemble with different configurations of instruments. And they've been able to extend that work. So for me, some of this work is on the side of the performers as well and what they bring to the audience. The other thing I want to add in there is um, for some years now, somebody who's been a great mentor to me and anybody interested in psychology of music should read his work, a man called John Sloboda. And he's been working with the Barbican Centre and the City of London and the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, where he's head of research there now. And they've been looking at how to engage audiences and actually what audiences want. And I was involved in one production, uh, which was a performance of Monteverdi's Tancredi e Clorinda. And uh, we actually uh, got the audience to speak before about what their expectations were, what they were looking forward to seeing and so on. And then afterwards they had the opportunity to talk to the performers. 
And I think what we discovered with that experience was that indeed the audience is particularly, just like the new audience, any audience, is to experience the charisma of the performer, to understand what is going on in the performer's mind, and to look at how they are expressing and communicating themselves. And indeed, if I go back to that 18th century pickup of the Greek, the ancient Greek art of rhetoric, it seems that the audience wants to engage with the performer in that kind of way. Now that in and of itself raises some thorny issues. Mm -hmm. And some of those issues for me are to do with what does a 21st century cutting edge classical music performance experience look like, feel like, sound like? Do we keep the absolute darkened auditorium and the highlighted performers? Do we start to break that up? Do we use lighting in a theatrical sense? What do we do? And I have a provocation to you. Is it useful? Is it good to use new technologies? Is it helpful that, for instance, uh, last year, the Australian Chamber Orchestra did something for Gallipoli, which was as much a film as it was the musicians playing. And in fact, the musicians were quite darkened when they were playing and there was a film up there. And you can think of lots of projects that particularly have been done by the Australian Chamber Orchestra in that kind of way. So I want to think about those things. I've got another couple of minutes. Yeah? You've got like two. Two. <laughs> I just want to talk a little bit again about this role of the performer. And uh, I did some audience research here with a project called Voyage to the Moon, which was between uh, Musica Viva and Victorian Opera uh, in two, uh, February 2016. And... Um, what I want to do is just talk about the audience's response. I, I'll not talk about the performers. But what we found was that the people who came to see this work, particularly in this venue, kind of drew a line in the sand. There were those who came because there were devotees or signed up members to Victorian opera, and they were opera audiences. And the other half, were Musica Viva's chamber music audiences. This show then toured to 13 other, other performances across the country. And I can tell you what I noticed really in a very striking manner was the difference between an opera inducted audience and a chamber music inducted audience. And the performers, those opera performers felt that they didn't get feedback from the chamber music audience members who were sitting there very reverently listening to the music when the opera etiquette is if you hear a great exciting aria, you cheer and you clap and you bang your feet and you're much more vocal. So familiarity with the genre was a very high response rate when I asked the audience, who are you, what's your profile? I'll just skip over this. And also, those who attended were willing to learn and engage a little bit, but they weren't sure if this was something that they would go on doing, although people tended to be very excited and love the performance. 
And what about the emotions that I've talked about? I, I mentioned to you earlier about this move the passions. How are you going to articulate that? How do you put that into the audience? And what we found was emotional connection and emotional engagement was very, very strong for the audience members. And I could give you an example of one performer, I will just flick to her, who is Emma Matthews, who I watched over that tour. And I could tell you that she was giving 100% in performance one. By performance 13, that woman was so gearing her performance to the audience and the measured and feedback she'd had over all those different performances, you could see that she was giving herself completely to her audience. And again, I think these are dialogues we have to have. What do audiences want? What is the expectation of performers? What does a commens you know, an absolutely commensurate, brilliant artist do in performance? I think these are all uh, important questions. And emotional, I, I want to mention one last thing and then I'm going to stop. Emotional contagion, so if I start to smile and laugh, you might start to smile and laugh, is a vital part of being in any kind of social context. What was really interesting in Voyage to the Moon was it was a pasticcio opera and it had a series of very angry arias and very calm, peaceful arias. There were many more angry arias, very flashy coloratura arias, and where lots of audience members were cheering and clapping at the virtuosity of the singers. What the audiences actually went away with was the pleasure they experienced from the overall calm they felt in the performance, which was contingent on one last section of the work that everybody spoke about as affecting them most deeply, which makes me think that the emotional contagion you feel that ultimately when you're being, uh, if you like, a passive audience member is you want to be taken into the mood of where you are in your seat, which is quite a different experience to being in a mosh pit at a pop concert. <laughs> or being a punk po going around. <laughs>